0: Myla Goldberg is the author of *B* Season, and her new novel is Wicket's Remedy. Welcome to the show, Myla. Thanks for having me. Myla, this is a fascinating novel about the 1918 flu pandemic, or at least it starts out being set there. Tell us a little bit about why you chose that setting, a historical setting, when your last novel was completely contemporary and fairly sedate in terms of its <laughs> setting.
1: Yeah. Um, well, before I even knew what I was going to write about for my second book, I knew I wanted it to be as humanly different from my first book as possible. Um, the writers I admire most are writers who are always pushing themselves and taking risks and trying new things. And I want to be a writer for the long haul. You know, 30 years from now, I still want to be writing books. And I think the best way to ensure a kind of long and varied career is to make sure I kind of push myself now when my brain is still really plastic before it gets all ossified and calcified as I get older. So I kind of was kind of keeping my ears Healed for a subject that was going to ring my bell, but one that would allow me to do something very, very different. And so it's not like I had set out wanting to write a historical novel per se, but um, this was just about a little more than five years ago now. And I was reading a New York Times article that listed the five worst pandemics of all time. And the 1918 um, influenza pandemic was right up there and I'd never heard of it. And I thought, well, that was rather strange. If it was such a big deal, how come I didn't know anything about it? And so the more I researched it, as I began to read about it, the more I became just fascinated with it. And I wanted to write about, you know, what it was like to be around then. But also driving me sort of a twin engine was the idea that um, memory is obviously very a uh, very fallible thing. Like, I hadn't known about this thing, and therefore it means other people probably didn't either. And so also driving me to write this book was to explore the frailty and unreliability of memory on both individual and collective levels.
0: It's a fascinating novel. And one of the things that you do real well is- is to compare the attitudes of death due to the man-made disaster of World War One, which was a horrific war, and compare it to the attitudes of the people who have died during the flu pandemic. Tell me a little bit about that. how you researched those different attitudes and how you portray them with your fiction.
1: Sure. Um, well, I mean, World War One was in full swing when the epidemic hit and was, in fact, responsible, largely responsible, for the epidemic being so large and having such a global reach. And so when I was doing my research, um, I was trying to get my hands on just as much material as I could about all these different subjects. So I was reading lots of books about the flu. I was also reading about the war, more of its effect on the home front, though, than, you know, in Europe, since I knew that I was going to be setting my story in Boston. And um, one thing that really struck me, and this was just sort of in reading, you know, a couple first-person accounts would be talked about in these kind of more scholarly journals. And the idea that, you know, it was somehow more noble to have been killed in the process of fighting a war than to be killed by a disease. And I think this also speaks to the fact that World War One is remembered and trumpeted in the annals of history while the flu has kind of been passed aside. Um, I think we're animals, we as people, are animals that like the idea of control. We like to make our own disasters. We like to make our own deaths. And so when something like a flu comes around that we have no control over, um, it's a little frightening. And I think most people would rather just not think about it. Um, And certainly in the early 20th century attitude towards death of natural causes like disease, it was just accepted. Um, You know, kids died all the time before reaching adulthood. Mothers died in childbirth. Babies died young. And so when a death that, you know, you could do nothing about happened, people just sort of took it in stride and moved on. And so the flu represented that on a grand scale. And people didn't want to dwell on it. They just wanted to push forward.
0: Tell us a little bit about the setting. Why did you choose Boston?
1: Yeah, um... I guess it was the research that told me it had to be Boston. Um, it was all, this is the first example for me of a book that I derived completely from research, which is a huge challenge. Um, my first book, B-Season, while certainly not autobiographical, thank goodness, was very personal in that I knew the community I was talking about. You know, I was a nice middle-class Jewish girl. I was talking about a Jewish family. I could handle that. With this, you know, it was 1918. It was the flu epidemic. These are things I didn't know dookie about, and so the research informed me and pointed me in the right direction Boston kind of screamed out to me as the setting firstly because it was a huge port of you know disembarkation for soldiers you know the doughboys going off to fight in Europe left in large part from the Boston Commonwealth Pier, which was the big naval, you know, base there. And um, also Boston, as I read on in my research, as I learned, was the site of experiments that were conducted on human subjects. And um, I've always been a morbid person. I was a morbid kid. I'm a morbid adult. And when I read about human experimentation, I was just like, oh, man, I got to write about that. And so sort of those two things made it Boston had to be it. It was kind of the shoe in setting.
0: One of the things that's interesting is the way you describe the society of Boston. Tell us a little bit about your heroine, Lydia Kilkenny. And what happens to her, and how she moves from one side of town to the other, and describe those parts of town too.
1: Sure, um, Lydia Kilkenny is born into South Boston. Um, South Boston was a very closed, close knit, intimate community of Irish Catholic families, um, and they all lived in tenements, you know, up and down the streets. And it was expected that if you were born there, that's where you were going to live your life. You know, you were born there, you grew up there, you married there, you die there. And um, Lydia had other ideas. She wanted something something a little bit larger for herself. She wanted to see more of the world, and so toward that end, she picked herself up, and um, when the rest of her friends, when they finished their schooling in 8th grade, which is what everyone did in that time, um, the rest of her friends were getting jobs behind sewing machines or cleaning people's houses, but she managed to get herself to downtown Boston, which was across a bridge in a long trolley ride away, and got a job in a fancy department store in central Boston, and it was there where she was hoping to kind of have her ambitions and her dreams maybe, you know, bring her to a different sort of world. Um, And, you know, South Boston was definitely looked down upon, you know, by the rest of Boston proper. And Irish Catholics were generally not looked upon very favorably by the rest of Boston at the time. So she definitely faced a struggle, you know, a struggle of trying to fit in in a place where she really wasn't generally accepted and trying to move on to a different world. Um, When she meets Henry um, Wickett um, at the department store, he's a medical student from a Boston Brahmin family, very proper, he represents the absolute other side of the tracks, you know, for her. And so when he starts courting her, she sees, you know, him representing this life that she'd always kind of been striving for.
0: He starts out to be a doctor but then pursues a different path. Tell us a little bit about that because it's a fascinating um occupation that he pursues. And tell us how you found out about the history of what he does.
1: Sure. Um, Well, the title of the book, Wicket's Remedy, is um, named for the patent medicine that Henry Wicket announces to Lydia after they've married that he is going to now spend his life promoting. Um, He decides to quit medical school, and he starts Wicket's Remedy, which is inspired, in fact, by Lydia herself. Um, Henry had always been a sickly person, but also a bit hypochondriacal as well. And in meeting Lydia, who filled him with such confidence and such encouragement, he was able to defeat his hypochondria. And he realized, aha, there's a whole class of people here, a whole class of imaginary invalids that I can help by the same techniques that my dear wife has helped me. And so he proposes to Lydia that they're going to create this medicine, which is in fact not a medicine at all. Um, The liquid inside Um, Wicket's remedy is just kind of flavored water, but accompanying each bottle, according to Henry's grand plan, is going to be a letter filled with such encouragement and confidence that the people who read it will be instantly cured of, you know, whatever imaginary ills had been besetting them. And um, I guess where that came from for me is since I knew I wanted to deal with the flu— Um, I also knew that I wanted to have a contemporary story. Um, Since this was a story that for me was in such large part about memory, having 1918 Boston set against contemporary Boston provided a mode of comparison to show how a city changes over time, to show how people forget how a city changes over time. And um, as a natural narrative bridge, I thought of the idea of a patent medicine. Um, The early 20th century was a golden age for the patent medicine, and um, contemporary sodas of today are pretty much the descendants of patent medicines. So I thought, oh, great, I'll start with a patent medicine that will evolve in its own way into a soda of, you know, the late 20th century. And that will be a really great sort of plot device to bridge, you know, 1918 and present day.
0: One of the things I think you do fantastically well in this novel is you address an incredibly wide range of subjects in this novel, but it's very compact. Did this involve, was this at some point an 800-page novel that you just (laughs) pared down to this wonderful... Terse piece. Terse
1: It certainly was longer at one point. I think the longest it ever got was maybe 550 manuscript pages, which, you know, if all those had been published, it probably would have been more like 500 or 475. Um, there were about 100 pages at the beginning of the novel that talked about Lydia's childhood and more in detail of her growing up in South Boston that ended up just totally jettisoning. Um, I realized I needed them because they helped me get to know my character. But in terms of their relevance to the actual story, it wasn't so much important to the story at large. In terms of all the different subject matters, I actually... That started out, I had a very strong vision for how I wanted to integrate lots of different material into the book, and that was in large part in thanks to the work of John Dos Passos, who was one of the people I encountered when I was doing my research. Um, A big part of my research had to do with reading period literature. This was a five-year project, and for the first three years of those five years, I did not read anything that had been written after 1945. And I'm a compulsive reader, so that was really quite a feat. I had to basically just ignore everything that was happening in fiction, you know, now so that I could just focus on earlier stuff um, for a couple different reasons. I've wanted to get my head around the heads of that era. And so the best way to do that, I thought, was just to see how they were writing and what they were writing about. But it also had to do with um, how I wanted to be writing the book. I wanted the language of this book to feel timeless, or certainly not to feel contemporary. I didn't want it to feel like something had been written in the late 20th or the early 21st century. And whatever I read influences how I write. I know that. And so I knew I had to avoid contemporary stuff to avoid having that sort of creep into my tone. And so in my research, You know, when I was doing this reading, I encountered the work of Willa Cather and Sherwood Anderson, and it was all very wonderful stuff that I hadn't really read much of. But someone I'd never even heard of was John Dos Passos. And he wrote a series of books called the USA Trilogy, in which he tells his story using lots of different kinds of texts, um, very much ahead of his time. Um, He has one section of text that is sort of a collage of radio broadcasts, which really anticipates the work that Burroughs did with cut-ups, I think, later on. He does stuff with voice in that book that I think anticipates a lot of the work of Faulkner. And just seeing that blew my head off. I thought, wow, what a cool way to be able to tell a story painted on a broad, large canvas. And so with him as the model, I kind of undertook to also use lots of different texts to tell my story to allow me to get different subject matters and different perspectives in there.
0: One of the most interesting things that you address is the topic of grief. And you address it on two levels personal grief the deaths of the individuals as they affect the characters but also national grief for the world the tragedies of world war 1 and for the flu pandemic tell me a little bit about how you managed to encompass those and how you as a writer approached each one and tried to fold them in the narrative
1: Sure. Um, Well, I mean, kind of the handy thing about something like grief when you're writing something, set, say, in 1918 or any historical novel is grief is grief is grief. I mean, you know, at root, people are people. And the big feelings that we have, grief and love and exhilaration, those don't change, you know. So I could you know, use my own empathy to get into the heads of people who had lost loved ones or like a nation who was in mourning. I mean, and especially, you know, I was writing this, I started this way before 2001. But, you know, when the Iraq war started, we became a country at war, and we were getting our own losses on lots of different fronts. Um, You know, I could use what I was observing in the world around me to help inform what I was trying to write, you know, in my story. And so... Um, You know, writing fiction is, I think Zadie Smith actually said this, and I think it's a really good, you know, formula. It's equal parts imagination and empathy. And so when, you know, you're writing about something like grief, that's where the empathy kicks in. You know, I mean, everyone's lost someone in their lives or they've had, you know, things that caused them grief in their lives. So that was was no great stretch. That was kind of the easier part of it, to be quite honest, in the writing.
0: Tell us a little bit about, though, the different reactions to the different kinds of of death that we...
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, well, this, I think, was t- is tying into what you were talking about before, about the difference of deaths in the war and deaths from the flu, um, which is, you know, there's different you're kind of allowed to grieve in different ways for different things. You know, if someone was grieving for a soldier, it was a very public thing. You know, you could be out there, you could be wearing your black armband, and you would be just surrounded by people who were giving you their sympathies and like, oh, my goodness, you know, you lost a soldier and we're with you and we're behind you. But I think losing, you know, someone to disease is a much more personal and private trauma there's something almost a little embarrassing about it you know and i think this is speaking again to what i was talking about what we can control and what we can't control we're very frightened by what we can't control and so all of a sudden to be surrounded by people dying of a disease that has swept in you don't know why you don't know what is driving it why it's killing so many people that is terrifying and so the instinct i think when you are frightened is to withdraw you know to withdraw both personally and like collectively and so you had a Bunch of very scared people who were afraid to talk to one another, afraid to congregate, sort of enduring their deaths alone. Um, in large part, I would say, with the flu.
0: As we talk about the flu, one of the, the interesting aspects you cover in this novel is the state of science then. It's in a way, this is a. Uh, it's science fiction. It's about. It's fiction about science. And the approach of the characters, its you create a really interesting dissonance because the characters don't know things that we absolutely know now. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how it was to write that. Did you plan that to create that dissonant effect on the reader?
1: Um, it was lots of fun to write that is the short answer to that question. Um, the last third of the book concerns experiments that are undertaken on human volunteers who volunteer to be part of a government study on flu transmission. And that is absolutely all. Awesome true. Um, When I was reading, you know, I found out about these human subjects and I tracked down the government documentation of the actual tests. I went to the Library of Congress and I located it. And so every test that has undertaken on people in my book is a real test that was done in 1918. And so as I was reading these things, I was just, my mind was reeling at the fact, like, they thought this was going to work? You know, they were trying this? And so that dissonance was right in my face. And so I definitely wanted to recreate that experience for the reader. Um, the other thing that's very striking about you know the medicine of 1918 is they didn't know what a virus was the microscopes had not been invented that could see small enough to find viruses and so it was a, so it was assumed that influenza was a bacteria and so they were trying to create vaccines based on this absolutely false assumption and so yeah the dissonance right away i knew was something i wanted to explore and it was really fun to kind of to kind of do nods and hints to the reader without saying flat out, these people are wrong. In fact, the more I could make them seem very certain and confident, the more it was going to come out as wrong to a reader who knows better just because they've got the advantage of, you know, 80 years on the people that they're reading about.
0: We're speaking with Myla Goldberg. Her new novel is Wicket's Remedy. Myla, tell us a little bit about more about this patchwork narrative style that you developed. Uh, For example... Did you uh, actually there are are there real newspaper articles in there? Are there real snatches of conversation?
1: Sure. Um all the newspaper articles are real. Um when I was doing part of my research was reading period newspapers and at first this started out as purely just, you know, research oriented. I wanted to get my head around the times, but I kept encountering these just Absolutely outrageous newspaper articles that encapsulated, you know, the attitudes of that time and the things that were happening much better than I ever could. I mean, this was one of those examples where truth was much stranger and much better, you know, brought off than fiction could ever be. And that's when I realized that I just had to include them. I think, you know, there's two articles that I wrote myself, but they're super boring ones that are just getting across like basic information because I couldn't track down the actual newspaper article that would have done it. But there's a bunch of outrageous things in there in terms of. strategies for keeping the peace and people's reactions to the war and trying to show their patriotism and all that is absolutely genuine. Um there's lots of other things in there like there's overheard conversations, um, like snatches of dialogue that I wanted to seem as you were reading it that you were eavesdropping. You know, you were maybe standing on a street corner and you were hearing those people talk. And that, you know, that of course is invented. I couldn't go back in time and actually listen to people talking. But um one of my favorite favorite things mine one of my very favorite things to do, um, you know, just as a person in the world is to eavesdrop. And it's something I actually can't turn off even if I want to, which can be a big problem because I could be in a restaurant maybe wanting to have a romantic dinner with my husband and there's some terrible person sitting one table over that's just really obnoxious and stupid and banal and I can't ever not listen to what they're saying. But the upside to that is when I'm writing and I'm trying to create different voices and different characters, I have all that to draw on. And so that was for me one of the most fun parts of writing this book because by using lots of different kinds of text texts, I got to affect lots of different kinds of voices. I got to be kind of a puppeteer or a ventriloquist doing like lots of different things. And in the dialogue that kind of, I tried to bring that out to its fullest effect because I tried to use lots of different kinds of people talking so that, you know, you were hearing soldiers or you were hearing just regular people walking on the street and as you were like inhabiting that world.
0: One of the things that works really well in the novel is the way at first some of those conversational snatches seem somewhat random, but then they start to hone in and you start to realize that you're overhearing characters that you've seen in other scenes talking about things that have happened offstage or happened onstage. I'm wondering... How hard was it to architect and layer that, and how much fun was it?
1: (laughs) It was both very hard and very fun. Um, To keep all the different kinds of texts separate in my mind, I actually got index cards, and I had this little plastic box that basically was the novel encapsulated in index cards. I had a different color card for every different kind of text that is in the book. And so it was using those that I could kind of make sure that the flow was correct, that things were kind of staggered at good regular intervals so they could guide the reader through and I could kind of like keep track and make sure I was doing those things, you know, in a manner that was going to work. But, yeah, it was really, really difficult um, because, as you were just saying, like, at first these things seem maybe sort of random and then you realize that some of these people are people that you're hearing about in other bits of the book and you're actually gleaning bits of information that contribute to the larger plot. And for me, like, art in general, but, you know, since we're talking about books, you know, writing in specific, for art to be effective, it needs to be a collaboration between the creator and the perceiver of it. So when you're talking about books, I think there needs to be an active collaboration between the writer and the reader. And so to my mind, that means giving your reader enough information that they can figure things out without actually painting everything for them. And so kind of creating a book in which this is happening on a lot of different levels, you know, from these overheard snatches of dialogue and from little bits of information that you hear in one place that you need to apply in another part of the book was a really fun way for me to sort of create that sort of spirit of collaboration between myself and whoever was going to be reading the book.
0: In a way, it's like you create the the effect of a mystery as you're laying out clues for the reader to put together. And it is, in fact, very enjoyable.
1: Well, thanks. I mean, suspense, I think, is an integral part of any good story, you know, mystery or no, you need to keep your reader guessing wondering, well, what's going to happen next? And like, you don't want them to be able to figure it out. And if you know, if you have a reader who knows everything's going to happen in advance, you're not doing a service to them. You know, the whole point of a book is to be full of surprises, just, I mean, you can't predict life. And so I like books to emulate life. They shouldn't be able to be predictable.
0: One of the topics that you address here is um, aging and it's really interesting what you do. Have you had the experience of having to, to deal with an aging relative?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I deal with in contemporary story and sort of the entire contemporary story is told in documents. And one of those sets of documents are sets of documents that are sent in by this nursing home that um, the aged Quentin Driscoll, who in the 1918 story is Henry Wickett's business partner. He is still alive in the present day story and sort of in his end years, you know, and in this nursing home. And um, I really, did want to try to get at the corporate culture of the nursing home because it is an insidious beast. And um yeah, I have had some um my parents are still very young and in very good health, but, you know, their parents have definitely gotten to a place where You know that we've had to kind of help them, you know, in you know figuring out how they're going to live their lives, you know, as they get older and older. And I think in general, you're seeing in fiction because we're now people who are living longer. There's this whole new set of circumstances that writers are addressing. Um, Alzheimer's has become an issue in fiction. Really, I would say predominating only in the past ten or fifteen years. And before that, you never heard about it in fiction because it didn't really exist yet. People weren't living long enough. And the idea of the nursing community as a place where you have to like Go when you're older. That also is a culture that is rising, and then because of that, is now being able to be seen in fiction more and more. And so I was very interested in addressing that because it is sort of one of our more recent developments culturally.
0: The other thing that you address really well in the contemporary story is corporate culture itself. You have a really great kind of satiric look of. With this newsletter and this, and also pop culture, people who are like fans of a soft drink. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: it's
0: really. It's yeah. really wild. Tell us about that.
1: Sure. Well, so Q D soda is the modern descendant of Henry's Remedy, of Wicked's Remedy, and um, I've always been fascinated. And I think actually the internet has made made me more aware of this, and I think people more aware in general is for any little teeny thing that you can think of, there is a devoted group of people who have spent like some large part of their lives like being just very interested in pursuing it you can find websites for the craziest stuff and so I like the idea of having this kind of obscure not very tasty soda that just had this ardent fan base and so was writing like a fanzine newsletter you know promoting you know the, the soda and among themselves talking about the soda and so throughout the book you get little copies of this newsletter talking about the soda and um it was just really fun to to write. Um, I think you know American culture is so centered on they kind of fetishize the product. You know, like things are fetishized to agree that they're sort of raised to this level of way above what they actually should be. Whether it's a Buster Keaton fan club and every year they get together and they dress up like Buster Keaton, or whether it's like a certain author that like there's this one book that everyone's just like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a wonderful example. You've got diehard fans of that book who meet every year to reenact it and discuss it. And then you've got kind of the consumer culture that surrounds these ideas. Like if you have a toy that you really liked as a kid, you know, there's this whole culture of lunchboxes and there's the mint condition lunchbox and the very fine-conditioned lunchbox and the good condition, and that happens with anything that you can think of. There's people that are collecting it. And so this sort of collector's ethos combined with the idea of the corporate culture, I think, was a really fun thing to explore.
0: You explore memory in this book, of course, and so I'd like to discuss the relationship between the contemporary story and the historical story. Tell us a little bit about how you create the tension between those two because it really does create an incredible kind of page-turning suspense. And that's an interesting thing to create suspense with memory. So tell us what made you decide to do that and how did you—
1: um, well, there's, there's, this is happening in a couple different ways. Um, and I'll address the f- first part first, what you're talking about, the difference between the 1918 story and the contemporary story. The kind of memory I wanted to address there was civic memory. Um, you've got Boston in 1918, contrasted against present-day Boston and huge changes have occurred to Boston in between those two time periods. Entire neighborhoods have been obliterated and so I really wanted to kind of show up those differences and show how a neighborhood can be just basically raised and, you know, raised to the ground and then forgotten as things grow up in its place. But um, also in kind of juxtaposing the 1918 story and the present-day story, um, I was exploring the idea of the personal myth and how the personal myth can kind of become truth Um, Quentin Driscoll when he starts out in the 1918 story Is one kind of person He's a business partner for Henry Wickett And he you know, was working with Henry Wickett But then he goes off and he does his own thing With, with um, Wickett's Remedy And turns it into a soda And he decides early on you know, His own history for how that's going to happen It starts being a story that he tells Just kind of sounds good But over time he comes to believe that story And so I was really interested In the idea how we all kind of Do create our own myths And if we tell ourselves a story often enough we come to believe it and we forget that it actually wasn't true to begin with and that's something I think that does happen to Quentin Driscoll in the course of this story. He comes to believe his own lie and um, it comes and haunts him later on. It kind of bites him on the shoulder, and he's got to deal with it, you know, in the present-day story toward the very end. Um, But yeah, so that was a really fun part to do. And then the other way that I'm addressing memory, which happens in the 1918 story, is there are these voices that happen down, you know, the margins of the page with people chiming in, disagreeing with what's going on in the 1918 story, saying, oh, well, it didn't happen that way. And sometimes their complaints are quite substantial, but sometimes they're really petty, you know, like, oh, well, it wasn't that color, it was this color. And... um, That was also just a really fun way to explore memory for me because it was – you know how you've got your grandparents and grandma is telling a story. Oh, and then we turned the corner and there was that really lovely store. And then grandma says, no, no, it wasn't on that corner. It was on a different street. And it's all really important. And I'm just fascinated by how the very small details of things like that become so essential. And it's basically – we are, our identities are absolutely informed and composed by our memories. And so, if we don't trust our memories, we don't trust ourselves and we no longer know who we are. And so, having these voices running down the page, I think, was a way to remind all of us, how identity and memory are so intricately linked, but also to kind of remind the reader that memory is not to be relied upon, even in a book. Like you usually, you trust the voice telling you a story in a book, and I didn't want that voice to be trusted here. I wanted the reader to kind of have that experience of not being able to rely on anything like memory.
0: It's an interesting spin on the untrustworthy narrator because you absolutely contradict her on the very same page. It's not something that's gradually revealed. It happens right there. Tell us a little bit about this idea of the afterlife and the voices that are talking, because it's really fascinating. Where did you get this idea to comment on the narrative as it goes. The, the entire book has very thin margins mm-hmm. because you've got constant little voices coming in and out of the narrative.
1: Right. Well, just as I was, I had mentioned earlier John Dos Passos and how his USA trilogy was a big inspiration. The other major inspiration specifically for these voices was um, Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabalkov, which is one of my very favorite books of all time. I mean, I read it a long time ago. And it's a book that you open it up and it looks like an epic poem with annotations. And then as you're reading, you realize that the novel lies in the annotations and I just thought that was the coolest thing ever and so I kind of made you know note to self try to use this one day and so when I found myself working on this book and realizing that I wanted to kind of challenge the primacy of memory and that was one of my main goals in this book I realized that voices you know chiming in from the margins was a really wonderful way you know to you know address that idea and so I just kind of you know ran with it it was really fun <laughs>
0: Tell us a little bit about your idea of the afterlife because one thing that I think is interesting, the way the pages are guttered, you have these little like encapsulated messages Mm -hmm. on the side. And it really reminds me of the image that's early on in the book when Lydia is working at the department store. And they communicate it by sending things, the messages through the vacuum tubes.
1: Mm, Yeah, the pneumatic tubes.
0: Yes. Was that deliberate? Because that's what I thought of whenever I saw those messages. I thought, oh, it's just like the tubes in Gilchrist's.
1: That's a really cool connection. No, that was not consciously in my mind as I was doing those margin notes. But I really love that that image. I think that does work really well. Um, It's interesting because I'm not someone who actually personally subscribes to ideas of the afterlife. And in fact, one of the things, and it's funny because I seek out fiction that tends to insert a bit of the fantastical into an otherwise realistic setting. And I think it's partly because I don't have any personal subscription to you know, ideas of magic actually existing in the world. And so books present me with my only chance to really believe in magic, if even for a short period of time. And so that this book takes its form in these voices and the idea that there is this weird afterlife. And I guess the way that I pictured it, it's not a heaven or hell situation. It's just if you die, um, there is this void in which there is a vortex of sound. And in that vortex of sound, it contains every single voice of every single person who ever lived, and they're all whispering their stories. (laughs) And it's just this huge... You know, all-encompassing thing, and sometimes those voices are actually overheard. You know, by the living, kind of in liminal moments, whether you know maybe your mind is wandering, or you're very tired, or you're a little bit sick, or you're just waking up, or you're just falling asleep. I liked the idea of this, there being this sort of narrow passageway that allows for sort of fleeting communication that can't be directed by either side. You know, the the dead have no control over when they can be heard or how they can be heard, just as the living have no control over when they're how they might hear someone. From over there, and I love that interaction. And so, one thing I like about having this long margin like, you could think that, well, you could have, you know, the margin when you have someone saying something, and then that margin can disappear. But I didn't want to do that. There's always this kind of big white space running down the side of the page, even when nothing's being said, because that is the physical presence of the dead, even when they aren't actually talking. You have these two realms that constantly throughout the book are existing side by side on the page, and I just really liked that idea.
0: Now, when you wrote this, did you typeset it? At the way we see it on the page?
1: I pretty much did, um, which was a big struggle because I don't know Quark or anything like that. So I kind of used Microsoft Word and kind of bent it into shape to kind of do my bidding as much as I could. Um, certainly for the way that the um, margin notes appear in the margins juxtaposed against the larger column of text, that was something I did on my own. And then, you know, the designers of the book were kind enough to really work with me in creating, you know, and inside some guts of the book that I really liked. Um, they did some fancier stuff, you know, in terms of how the different kinds of texts are dealt with than I was able to do on my own. But yeah, I had a very strong visual image for how I wanted this this book to look, both on the outside and the inside. And the publisher was kind enough to kind of, you know, let me explore that vision with them.
0: One of the side effects of that is it makes a book a a very quick read. It's, it, because each page doesn't have quite as much text as an average page, it's really a pleasure to read. Did you think about that aspect as well? Just- um,
1: no, I didn't. I mean, you know, I believe that form needs to serve function. And so my primary goal was, I need this to happen. What's the best way to facilitate that happening as the story evolves? Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny, because it looks like maybe a thick book, and then you're reading through, and you're like, oh, well, there's all this white space on the page. Um, so, but no, that certainly wasn't, the. It was like, that's a side effect, you know, rather than, you know, an actual goal that I was doing as a, I was writing it.
0: We're speaking with Milo Goldberg. Her new novel is Wicket's Remedy. Mila, I'd like to talk a little bit about the elements of the fantastic that you used. You mentioned this uh, earlier. Tell us a little bit more. Why why do you were you drawn to this and are you going to be using it in your next book?
1: Um, well, the books I tend to be drawn to as a reader are mm-hmm. books that do incorporate the fantastical. And I think the reason that I Am drawn to books like this is I think that when there's just a little bit of the magical in a story, it can show, kind of throw the world into sharper relief. Um, you can see the real world through a sort of different set of lenses that allows you to maybe see truths that you wouldn't have noticed otherwise, or it gives you a new perspective on truths. And so I'm kind of, to my mind, you use the fantastical to actually magnify reality, to magnify reality in a way it couldn't have been otherwise. And um, consistently I seem to be doing that in my own work. You know, in my first book, B-Season, the fantastical manifested in terms of sort of the mystical power that language has and, uh, you know, the little girl Liddy um Eliza, Eliza excuse me Eliza's attempts to kind of achieve transcendence through this magical power of language and words and so that was the fantastical in that book and so the fantastical in this book taking the form of you know the voices of the dead is sort of consistent I think with this vision of mine of trying to meld you know the real with the unreal so I would not be at all shocked if that continued to crop up in my work although in advance I certainly can't know I don't go into a work knowing how things are going to pan out tell us.
0: What uh, are some examples of fantastic fiction that you enjoy?
1: Oh, sure. Don't get, I, You get me started. I can go on for a long time about that. Um, I'll just mention two, maybe. Um, one is a book called War with the Newts, which is a forgotten classic by Carl Chapek, who invented the word robot in a play of his in the early 1900s.
0: Rossum's Universal Robot. You
1: got it. R-U-R. And um, he wrote this book, War with the Newts, which is about this kind of global struggle that ends up taking place between people and these sort of giant talking newts. And it was written, you know, over 80 years ago, and it feels like when you're reading it that it could have been written last week. It is utterly contemporary in feel and tone, and um, it's just wonderful. And he uses those newts to kind of just get at the, um, the foibles of human, you know, human nature and to talk about human character and to talk about religion and philosophy and society. And it's absolutely brilliant and hilarious. Um, and then another one, which is a big favorite of mine, especially lately, is a book called Blindness by José Saramago, a Portuguese writer. And in that book, an epidemic of spontaneous blindness um, afflicts the society and start, starts to cause the deterioration and ruin of that society. And it kind of ends up taking the form of an adult. Lord of the Flies. Um, it's absolutely devastating, but really brilliant. And the thing that makes it so incredible and kind of proves my what I'm trying to say about using magic to throw the world into sharper relief is the events that he describes happening as a result of this magical event, the epidemic of blindness, basically are exactly what happened in New Orleans. Like the reports that were coming out of the Superdome after Hurricane Katrina pretty much matched exactly what he had happening in his world when an epidemic of blindness hit his society. And so when I was reading these news reports, I was freaking out because like this guy predicted it all and he used magic to get there. And so that's what I mean by kind of magic being able to get you maybe a stronger foothold in the real world that you then you could have otherwise achieved.
0: It enables you to externalize the interior events mm-hmm. of yeah. humans to make, bring emotions out and make them concrete and allow them to strut across the stage.
1: Yeah, that's a great way of putting it.
0: Tell us a little bit about the family in your fiction. Families play a really important part, at the core of both of these, both of your novels are families.
1: Yeah, it's um. With B-Season, I knew it was going to be a story about a family. And I knew from the outset because, you know, it just it presented itself that way. In this book, I never really thought of it so much as a story about a family. But because I'm very interested in people and what drives people and their psychologies, family is a huge part of what makes a person a person. And so in my exploration of Lydia, it became absolutely essential to show, you know, her relationship with her family and the role that her family played in her life. Um, it'll be interesting to see in the future in my writing how, big or small a deal families are, but because I'm just so interested in, you know, the human psyche and what makes us, you know, work as people, that families are always going to play some role in there because, you know, they're a big part of that.
0: Tell us a little bit about, the family allows you to go two ways. On one hand, you can use the family to address issues out in society, and you can also go the other way, to look at how issues in the society affect the family? And tell us a little bit about how that plays out in this novel.
1: Um, Sure. That's a good question, actually. Um, I think in this novel, when first thinking about it, this is nice. This is actually a question I haven't been asked before. Um, It's more about, you know, I think you see this, I use this family as sort of a microcosm for the larger society. I mean, it's through Lydia's family that you come to know Southie and you come to understand Southie, and they are your window onto that world. Um, And they're also your window onto the culture at large. The way that they are affected by the war and the way that they are affected by the epidemic kind of serves as a portrait of how people were affected then. Um, The only sort of individual exploration that I do really is with Lydia and so her family to my mind is really only there to kind of help us understand her even better than we do whereas in my first book B season every individual of that family is developed on very equal terms and it's about exploring individuals in a family and so it's a much more interior study of family whereas this is a more broader study of family in terms of its interaction with the world at large tell
0: us a little bit about how it felt to see B season turned into a movie, how, <laughs> how how much did you participate in that, and how did you feel as it happened at each stage?
1: Right. Um, well, I had nothing to do with with the movie, um, and that was a very conscious choice of mine very early on when I was first trying to figure out first whether I even was you know comfortable with putting it up to be optioned you know for film. Um, I talked to a couple different writers, and I got some really good advice. Um, and I was told, you know, best case scenario people see the movie and they're like, oh, well, now I have to go read the book. And worst case scenario, people see the movie and they're like, oh, well, the book was a lot better. You know, and either way, my book stays my book. And I realized just for, you know, issues of sanity, it was probably best for me to keep my distance. Um, Because, you know, the nice thing about writing is it's a completely megalomaniacal, you know, endeavor. I'm in control of everything. And you can't get further than that with film. I mean, film is an absolutely collaborative effort. And so even if I had sat down and written a script for B-Season, it then would have been taken by the directors and the producers, and they would have done whatever they wanted to do with it, and that would have broken my heart. You know, I wouldn't have been able to deal with that. And so better just to, like, let them go do what they're going to do, you know, wish them well, and, you know, have that experience enable me to be a writer a little bit longer. You know, they wrote me a check, and I said, thank you very, very much, and I went off with that, and now I can be a writer and a full-time writer for longer because of that. And they're going to make their movie, and it'll bring more people to the book. And, you know, I'm okay with that.
0: So, So you didn't see the screenplay before it became a movie, and then think, oh my God. (laughs)
1: Well, no, I mean, they were actually, the the guys working on it were really nice. Um, They kept me in the loop. They were interested in my feedback. And so, you know, they did show me a script, and I did read it, and I did give them some ideas. I wasn't particularly expecting them to, like, heed my ideas and change everything, but they were interested. So, you know, I told them, but it was mostly kind of in the spirit of intellectual exchange than with any idea that I was, you know, a part of this process, because I wasn't, you know, and I knew that from the get-go, so...
0: Has your new book been op- option?
1: Um, There's been a little bit of interest. We're kind of taking our time with it. I'm in no rush to, like, go turn my books into movies. I write books because I love to write books. And um, it's be it's kind of hard to imagine how it could possibly work as a movie. I mean, if you're just looking at the 1918 story, I think that's a very cinematic story. It's a very straightforward kind of thriller about what happens when flu comes to town. But if you want to actually incorporate the book as a whole with the present-day story, that gets a lot trickier. And then there are these voices chiming in from the dead and I just I don't know how they're going to do it so if someone wants to tackle it you know I guess it's not an impossible thing to imagine happening but it's going to be a huge challenge
0: are you working on something new now are researching something new now?
1: Um, well, one of the things that, I mean, this was, my brain is tired. Like, five years of full-time writing to write a novel. Um, it's A novel requires such sustained energy and concentration that I definitely need a break. It's a very different feeling than I had when I finished B season. I was pretty much ready to start into something new immediately after B season. And this time I've been really happy not to be working on anything for a while. Um, or at least not on a novel. Um, you know, after five years of working on a novel, I can't spread myself out. I'm a very kind of, um... Mono, monogamous artist in that respect. If I'm working on a novel, I'm not working on other things. And so I've missed writing short stories. So I'm working on a couple short stories. I might even try a play or a screenplay, you know, before I go back to the business of writing a novel. But you know, there's definitely, I consider myself first and foremost as a novelist. So there's a novel in there somewhere and I'll start writing on it sometime. But
0: how do you know whether you're writing a short story or a novel or a screenplay or a play? I mean, how do you do novels really require like a whole battle plan and you sit down and with your Excel spreadsheet and say, <laughs> Okay, I've got like you know, a timeline it out?
1: No, I'm definitely not a planner in that sense at all. The idea of planning on that scale just kind of makes me very bored. Um, the whole fun of writing is finding out what's gonna happen next. But that said, it's It's this visceral thing that I'm not sure I can put into words too well, but like when I've got an instinct to start writing something, I can kind of know off the bat whether it feels like a short story or it feels like a novel, and I think it has to do with how I'm envisioning it, like a short story, I kind of think of short stories as laboratories. Like you can just kind of play with a single element in a way that a novel, you know, you need much more to sustain a novel. And so I can try one small thing out, or I can maybe fascinating with one very small event, I can explore that event deeply in a short story and then be done, where a novel is a much more broad, you know, scoping set of questions. And so when I was first reading about the flu, I knew immediately that this was novel territory. There was just so much there. And um, with short stories, I'll just think of, like, one small thing, and I'll just—I mean, I think it does happen sometimes that a short story will turn into a novel. That hasn't happened with me. Um, I always just kind of tend to know what it's going to be. But um, it's just this feeling, kind of like, you know, when you're walking down the street and you hear a sound, you're like, oh, well, that's a car or that's a bus. Like, it's just this, it's this knowledge like, that I just seem to—I have an instinct that I just follow.
0: We've been speaking with Myla Goldberg. Her new novel is Wicket's Remedy. Thank you very much, Myla.
1: Thanks for having me.